As we continue worshiping together, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bible or your Bible app to the Gospel according to Luke, the 12th chapter, beginning in the 13th verse. Let us receive together the Word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid out for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. And invite you now to pray with me. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you and you alone, oh God, are our strength and salvation. Amen. It's long been understood in church administration and management circles anyway, that what we count is what will get our attention. Makes sense. The logic is that if we're counting the number of people in our classes, or if we're counting the number or volume of IDs that we are processing for our neighbors, then the energy directed toward those ministries will inspire growth in those ministries. And what we count you see, by this logic, reveals what we value. It reveals what we believe matters, what we think is important. Today, the gospel that Joanne read so brilliantly for us today presents us with a parable that invites reflection on this. Now, it's easy and therefore tempting to label the rich guy in today's story as a bad guy. But think about it, look at it. What does he do that's bad? After all, he's not a criminal. He hasn't stolen or mistreated his workers. His land has produced bountifully at making him a wealthy man. He makes a smart economic decision according to worldly standards. He evidently has heeded both the counsel of his financial advisor and those pop-ups that show up every time he gets on his online banking site asking if he's 
appropriately putting money away for the future. Because, you know, Social Security is going to run out and pensions aren't really pensions anymore. The former simply planning for his future. He gets the biggest silos on the market and he's set. So if this man isn't a bad guy, then what is he? Well, the story that Jesus tells makes it clear that while the farmer may be smart and responsible in the ways of the world, he's a fool in God's opinion. Why? Well, it's not because he has money or that he's been successful. There's nothing inherently problematic with that. It seems the problem has to do with the fact that the farmer is focused on no one but himself. Listen carefully to what he says. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods. Relax. He doesn't talk to friends or family or God. He talks to himself. And he even has a conversation with himself within the conversation he's already having with himself. And this completely self-centered conversation is about his possessions. The farmer has allowed his possessions, his management of his possessions, to be all that counts. The one thing he relates to. Not people, not God, but rather his stuff. The farmer literally says that his possessions make his life good and happy. In response, we get the one time in the gospel according to Luke where God speaks directly to a character, to a person. And what does he say? You fool. Ouch. God challenges the farmer. Do your possessions keep you alive? Do your possessions go with you when you die? Whose will they be? This, of course, is not just a practical reminder, perhaps, to think about whatever possessions we might have and how they might serve others, both before and after our death. But this points to an even larger issue. If we play for a moment with the idea of the farmer being in a relationship, shacking up with his stuff in those big barns, I can imagine God asking, do your possessions help you become more of yourself? Do your possessions comfort you when you're sad? Do they laugh and delight when you're happy? Do your possessions love you back? We live in a culture 
where everything is driven by money and by the bottom line. And even soaked as we are in this reality, I imagine most of us know in our heart of hearts that money can't buy love and that life, as it says in the scripture, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I imagine we know that in our heart of hearts, but mercy, the messages that we are bombarded with all over the media try to convince us otherwise. And most of us are online even more than usual these days as we remain in various states of quarantine. The technology, have you noticed this? The technology and the targeted marketing just keeps getting sharper. I mean, sometimes we get some stuff and we're like, now why are they sending me that? <laughs> but sometimes there's some algorithm somewhere that has figured out exactly the thing that you will spend 10 minutes of your time watching a video about to show you the scientific proof about how this product will miraculously change your life for the better. How they do that? I don't know. One commentator suggests that most advertisements use a kind of inadequacy marketing. Inadequacy marketing. Think about that. That is, they exaggerate and they play on built-in human insecurities and anxieties and present products as the remedy. So whatever it is that you're most insecure about, they'll show you just what you need. If you only have this or tried that, your life will be better. It'll be easier. It'll be prettier. It'll be stronger, longer, and on it goes. And insecurities and anxieties, of course, are not a new thing. As a matter of fact, in the verses immediately following today's passage, Jesus teaches about anxiety, saying, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? What started this whole line of teaching was someone demanding that Jesus tell his brother to divide the family inheritance with him. And it seems that Jesus recognizes in this demand both an anxiety about not having enough and, based on the story he tells, a misplaced focus on what matters most of all. I once read about a lawyer who was getting ready to retire and who, upon reflection on his career, noted that he had spent so much of his career in the midst of siblings fighting over family inheritance. And he said, really, they were fighting over their parents' love. 
so often we we focus on stuff, on money, on products as a way to avoid the anxieties of our lives or to try to control the things that feel out of control or a way to try to deal with something that's much, much deeper and frankly, that's much more real and meaningful. We all grapple with worries of having enough or being enough. We all have various insecurities about our bodies. We're anxious about our health. We all struggle with worries at various points about our relationships. Sometimes, perhaps often, folks might get caught worrying about their net worth and then perhaps end up spending a lot of time counting the amount of grain they have and the size of their silos. When the real concern is whether their lives are worthwhile, meaningful, do their lives matter? I would argue that the very baseline, the most basic concern in human lives is, am I lovable? Am I loved? Jesus, of course, teaches us that what matters most of all is, he's already taught in this passage, not possessions, but relationships. The love of God and the love of neighbor. This is what life is about. This is what counts. This is where meaning and joy will be found. Loving relationships make our lives worthwhile. Our riches are found in the amount that we have loved and been loved. I've never heard people talk at funerals about how much money the deceased had or how big their house was. How generous they were? Yes. How they gave of themselves and cared for others? Absolutely. What matters in the end is not how big your barn is but how big your heart is, how much room you make in your heart to give and to receive love. We don't have to look far for the answer to the question, what is your net worth? We know the answer. I pray if you have been part of Foundry even for a minute, that you know the answer. What is your net worth? You are worthy of a love that is beyond measure. You can't count it. God's love for you is infinite and eternal and steadfast and patient and forgiving and powerful and saving. God loves you. You are worthy of that Love, you don't need the biggest barns full to the brim in order to be loved and to receive God's grace. Consider the ravens. They don't have a storehouse or barn, and you are so much more valuable than them. God takes care of us. I know it may be hard to remember, but I invite you to try to remember it when you're chasing down this thing. I've been doing that more than I care to admit. Chasing down this thing or that product to try to make yourself more lovable. You're already lovable. 
and deeply loved. And our faith teaches us, too, that this love is a free gift. Free. I mean, like, really free. No strings attached. It's a blessing from God that flows freely. God's love for us is what then strengthens us to be brave and to be generous, even in the midst of anxiety. God's love for us is what strengthens our own hearts to be patient and merciful and loving and kind, even in the face of challenge. God's love is what called forth creation and gives you and me the gift of this life. We may be creative and smart managers of the things we have in this life, but all those things are gifts from God without whom there would be nothing. In other words, God's heart of love is the font of every blessing. You are loved and blessed by God for free. As a way to try to remember these truths, I invite you today to consider taking on a very simple daily practice to take a moment each day to count your blessings. I know things are upsetting right now, beyond upsetting right now on every level in our world. I'm not suggesting to ignore that or to fail to pray for lament and labor to address the pain and the brokenness and the injustice in the world. Rather, I simply want to encourage you and myself, all of us, to intentionally call to mind with gratitude the things and the people that bless you and strengthen you in the midst of it all. If we're only counting the distressing headlines and logging our anxieties or keeping tabs on what is going wrong in our lives, then our souls will suffer more. We will miss the life and the blessing that is always also there, present because of God's love. And remember that what you count, what you are following, what you give energy to, that grows We can't control all that's happening in the world. We can do our part, but we can't control it all. What we can control is where we put our resources, our energy, and our focus. We need this resource of God's love. Perhaps you could write in a journal or offer a prayer in the morning or the evening giving thanks for God and God's love, for the people who love and bless you. One person shares with me that she makes a point every day as an act of gratitude to do something kind for someone. I've had other friends who will lift up something they're thankful for publicly as a witness online. As we do these things, we allow God's generosity and love to flow to us and through us and back into the world to bless others. They're simple teachings, simple practices. But what a difference they make. 
What do you count? Counting your blessings will cultivate over time a heart big enough to receive God's love, a heart that gets so full that it overflows with gratitude, with love, and with loving deeds and generosity towards others. (laughs) Jesus says, this is the way to build a life that will sustain you, a life that will last even into eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen.